Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. banks are broke. Oh, why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians to prison, it will continue. another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. And we're covering day three and day four of Consensus. And that's going to wrap up a week. (laughs) Yeah, um, this one was a doozy. uh, Let me tell you. This one was a doozy. Uh, It was was long. It was a long week for old car here. (laughs) These last two days, uh, it it was a lot to go through. They're pushing so many narratives, this consensus. And I felt like the back two days was an onslaught of just central banking and fiat currency and regulation and Federal Reserves and the continuation of debt slavery and an onslaught of all that. It's about MasterCard. Visa, 2% inflation, about the elites, crypto neobanking, a lot of buzzwords, you know, a lot of buzzwords. I'm going to let this guy (laughs) explain what the hell he was doing, (laughs) what the hell they were trying to do here, because to me, it felt like just a shilling of of central banking entering crypto. That's what it felt like. Literally felt like just central banking entering crypto these last two days. Let's let central banks talk about how they're going to enter crypto and try to kill Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these cryptocurrencies. Or better yet, let's talk about central banking and CBDCs and how they're going to enter this space and go after Bitcoin. And we'll partner with Ethereum and they'll help us kill Bitcoin. That's what it seemed like. But I'm gonna I'm gonna let you listen to it. <laughs> but first, let's let this guy explain day three and day four. 
Welcome back for day three of Consensus, presented by Coindesk. I'm Michael Casey, Coindesk's Chief Content Officer. We're eager to kick off today's content, but before we do, I must say yesterday was incredible. We heard from some of blockchain's most impactful voices and their ideas on the blueprint for the future of the industry. We'll continue to delve into the most relevant topics of today during our keynote discussions on inflation and the global economy. Stay tuned for updates from the foundation sessions, especially if you're curious to know what's next for Bitcoin and Layer 2. Welcome back for day four, the final day of Consensus 2021, presented by Coindesk. I'm Michael Casey, Coindesk's Chief Content Officer. What a week it has been from breaking news, major announcements, and stellar discussions. As we round out our last day together, we're going to attempt to answer some long outstanding questions circulating in the blockchain and crypto community. Questions like, what's next for the global economy? Is Bitcoin a safe hedge against the dollar? Will DeFi defy all previously set expectations and take us to the moon? So for the last episode of Consensus, I thought, you know what, let's do it with three different segments here today. The first segment is going to be about regulation, banks, Visa, Bitcoin ETF. It's going to feature people like Brian Brooks, Caitlin Long. They're going to talk about regulation. They're going to talk about chartered banks. They're going to talk about more regulation. <laughs> and then they're going to talk about more chartered banks. But finally, they'll end off talking about Bitcoin ETFs. These are family offices. These are people in the know. But the vast majority of this stuff we've already talked about throughout the year. We already know exactly when a Bitcoin ETF is going to happen because I've already told you when it was going to happen, right? There's people like Jake Travisky that has talked about when a Bitcoin ETF was going to happen months ago, right? So we've already covered that. A lot of the stuff that they're talking about, we've already discussed. So a lot of stuff isn't new news per se. It's just people that don't get a chance to look at this uh, every day and aren't in the know week to week. They go to things like this and they catch up all at once. Right. But quite honestly, I don't know how you can watch 12, 13 hours of this in a row 
and then download that in your brain and be all well and good. It's just too much. There's way too much information here. I, I honestly find it way better and much easier to consume this way, the way I'm bringing it to you. Uh, just getting out the nice juicy bits, bringing it to you in a, in a very palatable, palatable? Yeah, palatable, <laughs> juicy bite, right? So a lot of what you're going to hear in this first segment is just that stuff you already heard, but some interesting bits. Okay, with that, oh, one more thing. Before, before we jump into that, I will say this. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very of the mind, and this is me being biased as hell, by the way, because you know where I stand with a lot of this regulation and, and crypto banking and this whole, you know, fiat regime and CBDCs, and you know exactly where I stand. I make it, I make it known right? I think this is all charade. I think this is just the most ridiculous thing in the world. This whole blockchain bullshit that they're doing, Visa, MasterCard, it's, it's all a scam, <laughs> right? And so when I see them bring them on board to these panels, it's ridiculous. Talking about, oh, we're using this technology. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're playing catch up, right? You're playing catch up. At best, it's a database in the cloud on AWS. At best. I'm going to give you an alternative view right off the top because all you're going to hear is how great <laughs> CBDCs from consensus. That's all you're going to hear. This, this, this whole panel, this whole juicy bit. That's all you're going to hear. It's great. It's great. It's great. It's great. But I have to give you an alternative view because if I don't do that, you're going to think CBDCs are great and, and it's the way forward. And, you know, quite frankly, maybe it is. Maybe it is. And maybe we'll get out of this trillion dollar, gazillion dollar piece of, piece of debt that we're in, right? I just don't think that's the way it's going to turn out, unfortunately. <laughs> right? That's why we have Bitcoin. But I'm going to give you an alternative view right off the top from no better person to give you that alternative view like Max Kaiser. Right? And then we'll proceed on with them talking about how great CBDCs are, Visa, MasterCard, all that, Jazz, Bitcoin ETF, all that. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. That's great. Well and good. But... I need to give you a different opinion because Coindesk is not going to give you an opinion. Those corporations, those projects, whoever speaks in these panels pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get on them. They do. That's the truth. That's what happens behind closed doors. They bring all this media to cover it, right? They promise them all sorts of perks, right? Well, here is some balanced reporting. Take the throne, Max. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time 
worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times they are changing Critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was a loser, now will be later to win For the times, they are a-changing Senators, congressmen, please heed the call Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled The battle outside raging Will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls For the times they are a-changing And just like we had the Enlightenment, we have the New Enlightenment with Bitcoin, and just like we had the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Russian Revolution all coming about to end the era of aristocracy a couple of centuries ago, we're getting ready for the new era, the new insurrections, the new revolutions, and Enlightenment and Renaissance 2.0 aided by Bitcoin. Right. And at the time, February 2020, it's just at the very beginning of the pandemic it was just hitting China at the time. But again, the article in Bloomberg points out there, they're like, oh, the ECB couldn't have imagined like they you can't imagine that they actually want to help somebody like Bernard Arnault, that it's just for the ordinary people really trust us. Like all these programs are supposed to be just for the ordinary people. Really, we need to help the people. Right. Uh, and when America. they did this, yeah. uh, OK, I pointed out that in real time when it was happening, that it was just the ECB handing over Tiffany's to the richest man in the world now for free. And that's why interest rates are so low. It has absolutely nothing to do with helping out people. As a matter of fact, low interest rates are causing feudalism to reemerge in Europe and in America at the same time. Like we fought the Revolutionary War for nothing. The Declaration of Independence was for naught. The Constitution has been shredded. We're right back to where we were in 1776. And either this country wakes up and realizes that the central bank, which we resisted for 100 years until 1913, when the Bank of England came over and instituted the central bank, the Federal Reserve Bank in America, and reintroduced aristocracy in America, we are going the way of all feudal serfs into the dirt. Eating dirt, America, eating dirt.
last year, of course, the SEC sued uh, Ripple, you and uh, Chris Larson on allegations that you know you've been selling XRP as a you know unregistered security offering for the last several years. I know that you know at least the last couple of months there's been a lot of back and forth in the courts about you know access to the SEC's documents, access to I believe uh, bank records uh, for you know banks that Ripple uses. Um, can you just kind of give us a quick snapshot of where things stand right now and what are you know what are the next steps? What do you expect to see um, you know coming up to the next hearing? So, you know, if you're following this closely, it is, you know, pretty fascinating to follow, in my opinion. You know, I've seen people comment in the t- Twitterverse, the crypto Twitterverse about, you know, that eventually there'll be a movie about it. You know, but to answer your question right now, we're in that discovery phase. You know, l- lots of letters, lots of responses uh, and you know, the SEC and Ripple kind of fighting about, you know, uh, the discovery stuff. You know, what I think has become obvious to a lot of people across crypto. And, you know, frankly, we said this when this lawsuit was first filed is this. This is about more than just Ripple. This is about more than just XRP. It, it really does have implications for all of crypto here in the United States. And I think everyone here today at Consensus, you know, we're here because we believe in the future of brown blockchain. We believe in the future of crypto and how these core infrastructure technologies can address transactions in lots of interesting ways. It's clear to me that there's a massive gap in leadership here in the United States. Now, if we go back in time, you know, circa 20 years, the leadership around regulation for the internet, as we know it, the internet of information, as we know it, really helped catalyze the U.S. leadership, uh, which had both economic and, frankly, geopolitical benefits. But there's a lot of global regulators that are way out ahead of the U.S. Uh, you know, I think many people cite Japan, they cite Singapore, certainly the U.K., uh, Switzerland, you know, even the UAE and the Middle East, you know, these are all examples of markets where there has been clarity uh, and that certainty and clarity allows entrepreneurs, allows investors to kind of, you know, invest and go forward. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the U.S. is the only country that has suggested XRP is a security. Uh, no other country on the planet has suggested that. So, look, I, I think, you know, despite being in that discovery phase, one of the most consequential things that did get quite a bit of attention is some have accused the SEC of picking winners because they came out and said, you know, Bitcoin's not a security. Then they came out and said ETH is not a security without a lot of explanation as to why that's the case. And one of the things that Ripple asked for in the discovery uh, is to compel the SEC to share the information about how they made those decisions, why they you know kind of picked those winners. And the good news was the court did grant Ripple's motion to compel the SEC to you know, share that information. And it's really the first time they've been ordered by, by a court to be transparent about this. And I think all we've asked for for two to three years is that regulatory clarity. And so, uh, look, I, I think it is progress. Unfortunately, it, it moves slowly. I'm hopeful that uh, as a, a new SEC administration comes into its seat, that there's an opportunity to kind of revisit some of the previous administration's decisions. I think everyone knows, you know, Jay Clayton filed this lawsuit the day before he left. I mean, he left the building the next day and it's kind of like, huh, you know, uh, way to hand this to the next guy. But uh, so far, I feel really good and really pleased that a neutral fact finder, the judge is, you know, clearly understanding some of the nuances here and the importance of this uh, for crypto here in the United States. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex.
Well, if, if you look at how those assets are being discussed today, there are several mostly permission ledgers that the central banks are experimenting uh, with. But if you think about it in, in the way that you have stable coins that are backed by commercial money held that are reserving any of the, of the private stable coins that exist today, and then they are being deployed on, on public protocols, there's no reason why you would need a CBDC to be issued on one of those native protocols. Once that the asset is, is out there and the regulation is clear and it, the, the reserves are either kept at a central bank or, or somewhere else, that value exists as fiat exists today. So the same way that you could deploy a stablecoin on Ethereum or Solana or Stellar or many of the other protocols in which stablecoins backed by commercial bank money exist today, there's no technical or probably no regulatory reason why you should not be able to do the same thing having a CBDC as the underlying asset. You guys are in talks with nearly every central bank in the world. I mean, I know you're not going to go and tell me what like the, you know, uh, you know, chair of the Central Bank of England said to you yesterday, but I would like to know, take us behind the curtain a little bit. What are those conversations like? What are the central bankers? I mean, do they like this stuff? Do they hate this stuff? You know, who's in the lead? Who's behind? Just take us behind the curtain a bit. About what is important. I, I walk into these conversations thinking, that obviously a very a very high concern was making sure that the migration to digital does not impact financial stability. There's a lot of talk about the roles of of banks and uh, when people are discussing CBDCs about two tier distribution systems. And obviously the stability of of the financial system is is the primordial mandate of of the central banks. So they they are very interested in making sure that any evolution of of the instruments does not disrupt financial stability, and obviously that makes all, all the sense in the world. I have been uh, surprised about the intensity of the conversation around universal access. And when you think about it, and maybe I was surprised and, and I should, shouldn't have be, been, because obviously accessibility is, is a big priority for the banks as well, but this combination of uh, acceleration on the wake of the pandemic, acceleration towards digital cash, and, and in some sense the a reduction in the presence of retail bank branches and, and the ability to have a, a, a bank account is a concern when you think that you, you are in charge of providing a, uh, an option for the public. It was a few weeks ago in, in a county, Sierra County here, just three hours from San Francisco, which is one of the areas that have been defined as a banking desert. So it's, it's a full county in which there is not a single bank branch. So. It makes sense if you're a central bank and you're thinking about distribution to think about banks, but also think about how, how would you distribute that CBDC through digital wallets and people who and, and entities who can reach the general public as long as they have a mobile phone with them. There are some really, really interesting experiments that are going on sponsored by central banks. I mean, what is going on in, in China with PBOC and the, and the digital yuan, but also the work that the Boston Fed is doing with MIT on Project Hamilton that they're, they're saying that they're, they're going to release a, uh, some papers during this summer. So I give more credit to central banks on the technology side that usually the, the public does. I, I think that they know what they are doing. But I don't think that most of central banks have an appetite to say, hey, we're going to own the technology stack of this and we're going to be handling, in the case of the U.S., 300 million consumer accounts that we're going to, that we're going to serve. Distribution through banks and distribution through non-bank uh, financially regulated institutions makes sense. If you look at not only PayPal, but if you look at many of the wallets that are active in the market, it makes sense that we are part of the form factor that gets this to the public. Let's we have that experience during during the pandemic, right? When we saw that COVID relief disbursements 
took days to get to people. And, and in many cases, there were physical checks that were put in the mail that people would receive and, and then would need to go to a bank uh, to cash. I'm sure that we can do better than that and that, that we can streamline that process and, and make sure that broad distribution is available. My bet, my money would be in that there, there isn't, I don't think there's going to be 75 different stable coins per currency, but I don't see a reason why there would be only one. I think that there, there are space. And if you start to see that there are stable coins that are kind of specializing on specific use cases, you see that on the DeFi and, and, um, and trading space where it makes sense. There are things that are built on Ethereum that are getting a ton of traction. But then you see a protocol like Stellar, which is very much thought for payments. And you see other developers building on on, a, on that protocol for remittances. And, and nothing that we have seen that has significant traction yet, but many interesting experiments. We tend to follow uh, developers and we keep a close eye on, on where the developer community is, is going. And we can see a world in which first there are going to be several uh, uh, stable coins per currency and optimized for different use cases. Huh. And I want to go to conclude with PayPal's own sort of initiatives with, with retail customers. You introduced uh, you know Bitcoin buying and it's been very popular, same with Venmo, but you can't move it off the platform. But I've, I've you know heard that that might be changing soon. So will, will PayPal retail's users be able to, to move their Bitcoin off the platform anytime soon? So if you look at our cadence, we have been shipping new functionality every two months or, or so. And the driver of that roadmap is very much what we are hearing on our voice of the customer surveys and what the community is, is demanding uh, from us. Uh, we care about access. We care about utility. We understand there is more utility to those tokens if you can move them around. So we are definitely exploring how we can let people transfer crypto to and from their PayPal wallets to other addresses in a way that, that is optimized on the technology side, but also compliant on the regulatory side. So we're working on, on it and we look forward to being able to deploy that soon. And can you give us a quick timeline? Is that going to happen you know, by the summer, by the end of the year? I can give you a date now. I would love to give you to be able to give you a, a, a date, but definitely we're working in, intensely on it and we hope it's going to be rather soon. Okay, so the third party third party wallet transfers are coming to the the pay, PayPal and Venmo platforms in. Uh, they are, and we want to make it sure that again on, this, on that same framework of of utility, we want to make it as open as possible, and we want to give choice to our consumers. Same thing that we let them pay in any way they want to pay. They they want them to bring their crypto to us so they can use it in commerce, and we want them to be able to take the crypto they acquire with us and, and take it to the destination of their choice. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Yes, no, thanks, Lewis. I mean, it's an interesting question because I, I look at three buckets. You've got Europe, you've got the US, and effectively you've got Asia, Africa, India, and South America. So um, in the emerging world that I concentrate on, you've got the majority of the youth of the world. Now, if you're trying to write regulation and laws in the US, it's very difficult because you've got state-based regulations. It's you know, Every state's different, federal's different. Um, Europe's a big jar of spaghetti because you've got people that speak different languages. It's It's been difficult, but what I've looked to do, because I'm Australian. When I first started to write you know, regulation and laws, I looked at digital assets and I looked at the Commonwealth because if you look at the number of emerging countries that are in the Commonwealth, there's 53 countries. So the countries that I've worked in are mainly islands, um, Bermuda, Mauritius. I do a lot of work in Africa. I've been doing a lot of work in India. Obviously, I'm Australian. There's Canada. There's the UK. Now, we all, because of the UK, have common law principles. So it's much easier, I found, if, if 
So we're all talking about standardisation and harmonisation. You really need that in this industry because I come from financial markets, you know, I was regulated across maybe 40 jurisdictions, the same. So it's important that you have aligned definitions and aligned standards and harmonisation of all of those because the ecosystem itself, um, if you go to a country that doesn't have great regulation, it's very hard for you to... um, to come back into a mature market. And it's also very hard for you to scale. So it's a very, it has to be a collaborative approach. And the countries I've worked in are small and they're very nimble. And, you know, innovation moves fast when you have populations that, that are driven by it. So um, I like the fact that I work in Commonwealth countries because we all have the same law system. I, I dream of the day when I can have treaties of technology, not tax. But I think the Commonwealth with its 53 countries and having very aligned um, regulations and laws that I'm trying to help a lot of these emerging markets write are the same. So, yeah, a digital asset is different things in different parts, but if I can, yeah, we can say that a digital asset is a new asset class with the, with the subset of a cryptocurrency in the places that I've written, that's much easier. And and companies can passport because they want to go to the emerging market because you've got um, the biggest populations on, on the earth which use technology. So it makes sense to have harmonised and um, yeah, regulatory frameworks that work across those large continents that have large um, youthful populations that understand technology. So when I was at the SEC, I worked in the supervisory cooperation group. That was a group that was dedicated and focused to regulatory coordination at the global level. So I am very encouraged to know that there are people who are really dedicated at the regulators to work on these issues. Um, They're working on substituted compliance. They're working on equivalence. I I was one of the drafters of the SEC's cross-border derivatives rules. Um, Like that, that's really encouraging to see. And I think it's, so at a global level, I think it's important to see that regulatory cooperation. And then of course, with our complex regulatory picture in the United States, seeing this internal coordination is also extremely important. Obviously, you know, we've, we've seen all these calls um, and, you know, recent testimony on the Hill about conducting the regulators here, conducting an interagency sprint on crypto. Um, so there's more to come on, on that. Certainly they're coordinating on, on that initiative. Um, and then, you know, of course, on, on a whole host of other topics as well. Yes, three years is a long time, also in fintech, not just in blockchain. Um, some of the major trends we've seen and are witnessing right now is also hitting on the points from Amber earlier. We're witnessing here the largest generational wealth transfer and technology revolution in history in parallel. And this and the ability to handle and connect large amounts of data is changing the world. So we're seeing the ecosystems converging. We're seeing the verticals breaking down. We're seeing that whole flow of data going between much faster now. So not only that, but the next generation of investors are one growing a lot faster due to COVID, a lot of savings, and a lot of wealth transfers mentioned. The new investors are also very prone to digital assets. So if you are to hand your wealth down to your son or daughter, they're not very likely to stay with the traditional wealth manager to the TradFi. And as 60% of the world's assets are about to be digitized, it also adds to the complexity of the entire thing and brings even more data about. 
So I think if we look back at the three years and look at what happened, um, I would say most of the conservative bank wealth managers got good at innovating. We all remember the terrible POCs that took 12 to 24 months. I think on that note, they got good. They started innovating with the fintechs. They built ecosystems. They started to connect them. They reduced the time to market. However, most of this was forced by the speed of neobanks and clients asking, Revolut, N26, and in parallel, their clients were getting into crypto. They were getting into starting uh, to trade and, and, and hold assets and digital assets and pushing them for that. So it's not necessarily that our clients wanted to, to change overnight. It's really driven by the market demand. And lastly, and I have to bring this up as well, I mean, in, in response to, to this, we then started seeing our banks coming to us, asking us for digital asset custody, trading, and tokenization solutions. And we're also seeing, to Rashid's point earlier, we're seeing the big banks getting their feet wet, some sooner rather than later. We have JP Morgan, Julius Baer out there already. We have UBS last week saying, we're, we're thinking about doing it now. And City came out last week as well. Bit of a late entry, but it's never too late. When we think and when we look at what we see is that that's driven largely by the second crypto boom. It's the inve increasing investor sophistication and it's um, people are going to invest uh, more than ever because of this growth and this pool of investors. And of course, that's helped by COVID. Um, that's also helped by the wealth transfer. And so if I were to, to summarize this a little bit, I would see to, to serve the new reality that we have here, this much, much bigger picture, which is TradFi plus DeFi plus a bigger pool of investors the future will be something around linking and complementing each other. I don't think you can have one without the other, then you would miss part of that picture. But if you can link TradFi and DeFi, um, you can best serve the client. Are you not perhaps afraid of what might happen to you as a result of making these revelations? Oh yeah, I probably am a dead man already. So where do you see the value for, you know, Binance US uh, coming from these? Is it transfer fees from the, you know, exchanging of the stablecoin or the rewards program? You know, where do you see this kind of underlying value to the company? So, so, yeah, yeah. So, so, so here's the thing. Okay. Many people who are in crypto think of the value model, sort of the monetization model, like they were a bank, which is sort of ironic because we're all in this because we don't love banks, right? We're trying to disrupt them. But when it comes to thinking about the financial model, we're thinking banking. So it's trading fees and, and, and things that are associated with, with transactions. My personal view is we're building the internet here and we ought to think more about value from an internet perspective. So how does Facebook make money, right? How does Google make money? That's the way we really should be thinking about it because we're incubating the development of networks. So I'm thinking that there are things like, hey, I'd love you to come and list on my platform. I'm willing to waive the, the uh, listing fee on our platform all because if you let us develop a token with you, like one of these loyalty tokens I'm talking about, and it comes onto our platform, and with that, you deliver to me 50 million of your customers who now need to be members of Binance US so they can buy and sell that token in the secondary market, that's a huge lift for me. I've suddenly got 50 million monthly active users. And internet companies are valued based on membership and community and participation more than they're valued based on transaction fees. So I think that's the ultimate model here. It's an internet model, not a financial services model, even though some of the stuff being done is financial services. Uh, and, and so look at Google, not Bank of America, as, as what, uh, what we sort of aspire to.
I see. So um, we have about seven minutes left. I did want to spend some time talking about, you know, your past life uh, from just a year ago at the office of the controller of the currency. You're acting controller there. And you, as you know, Nate said earlier, you really led a very fintech forward agenda. Um, I, a year ago, when you were speaking at Consensus Distributed last year, you wanted to you you brought up the idea of creating a payments charter for crypto exchanges and other fintech firms that would allow them to bypass the you know fifty state regime. Um, I think ultimately it looks more like you went with a more established charter, one that the OCC had already created. Um, I was really hoping you know could you just kind of walk us through the process of you know really how'd you get from the initial proposed or suggested payment charter to one that's, you know, that the OCC has already had that, you know, is now kind of, you know, under fire in the halls of Congress. Yeah, well, so so there's two different conversations there, obviously. There's the question of why on earth is it under fire in the halls of Congress? You're right, it is. The question is why? Um, but then there's the question of what what did we do and what was kind of driving our strategy on that? So, you know, when I first stepped into the office, I was thinking not only about crypto, but also about payment companies like Stripe, PayPal uh, and the like, and how those companies um, engage in, at this point, sort of the majority of payment processing in the United States and the vast majority in, in e-commerce. And yet are doing that totally outside the banking system. So I began with the thesis of, hey, the concept of what banks do has not changed, but the concept of what a bank is has changed a lot. So why don't we migrate the concept of the bank charter to fit you know, the actual way we're all using financial services today. And I did ideate the idea of a new charter, which which I think will inevitably come to fruition. Obviously, the concept of a non-depository charter currently is tied up in litigation. And, and so I think the likelihood is the OCC will wait to see the outcome of court cases before it grants those charters. But in the meantime, I didn't want to delay um, bringing financial companies into the OCC framework. So the question was, what frameworks do we have today that will serve the purpose? One of them is the National Trust Bank Charter, which was what was granted to Anchorage, Paxos, and Protego. And what we did there, Nick, which might have might have gotten less attention, uh, your question makes me think it got maybe less attention than it deserved, is we didn't just simply take an off-the-shelf charter and say, well, uh, since we can't do a payment charter on a standalone basis, we'll give you this, this other pre-existing charter. What we did is we took a fresh look at what we think the powers are of the National Trust Bank Charter. And we issued a really important legal interpretation of those powers, which if, if you look at what we said, make that a much more useful charter for crypto companies than the old interpretation of, of the trust bank would have been. So national trust banks, which don't have to take deposits and do get to be Fed members, under our new interpretation, have many, maybe most of the same powers that a full-on national bank has. So I would argue that looks a lot like the payment charter I talked about, even though we didn't necessarily go off and invent a new charter type. So, um, you know, maybe we'll just keep that between us. Fair. But then, you know, referring to like the, the Fed side of things, the Fed only just, you know, I think less than a month ago published a proposal to allow chartered uh, institutions access and you know, my understanding from speaking to some folks is that it's unclear whether the OCC chartered institutions would be, you know, allowed to be part of this. So, yeah, I, what kind of feedback did you get from the Fed? Um, and even the FDIC, I think, is also kind of, they only just now just started putting their toes into this. Um, you know, what kind of feedback did you get from the Fed and the FDIC when you were, you know, ideating on this? Well, so, so for, first of all, the FDIC is not necessarily very relevant on this front because, you know, the FDIC is only involved right. in banks that accept insured deposits. So these, you know, the anchorages of the world don't don't have to deal with the FDIC. It's really the Fed that matters. 
what I would say there is obviously, you know, there has been a political change since I was in, in office, right? And when I was there, the relevant Fed governor on this was Vice Chairman Quarles, uh, who was, you know, like me, appointed by the last president. And so he and I were able to have a good dialogue about, about how this would all roll out. Now it's clearer that leadership on these issues has been transferred to uh, Lael Brainerd, who obviously is of the other party and the other persuasion. Um, but having said all that, I will just say on the merits of what the Fed is doing, it's pretty dangerous to say that the Fed can exclude from Fed payment services and other Fed membership benefits a bank that is chartered by the agency that is tasked with chartering banks. There has never been a national trust bank that was not accepted as a member of the Fed. And so the idea that somehow these trust banks could be excluded just because they're engaged in custody in crypto, that's, that's a, it's, not, it's not only a crazy idea, it's a dangerous idea at some level. Because in a world of deplatforming, you don't want some politically appointed person saying which banks get access to the central bank and which banks don't get access to the central bank uh, at all. The idea that a bank that is custodying fine art collections or rare wines gets access to the Fed, but a bank that is custodying crypto private keys can't. I mean, somebody explained to me what is the rationale for that other than just rank politics. That's a really bad idea when we politicize the banking system, right? Uh, sort of like, uh, you know, it's just another version of how we have politicized social media in ways that are pretty divisive in this country. So I hope that doesn't get legs. Right. So do you see crypto as kind of, you know, being mature enough uh, and kind of widespread enough that, you know, just on the merits uh, in of itself, ignoring the politics of it all, that crypto institutions should be, uh, you know, they should be accepted within the Fed master accounts. They're not going to pose a systemic threat or risk to the, uh, you know, rest of the U.S. financial system. I mean, look, we we, we should ask ourselves what uh, what is it that causes systemic risk? The idea that someone might lose money. Um, does not by itself pose systemic risk. Otherwise, the New York Stock Exchange would be banned, you know, or JP Morgan wouldn't be allowed to be a Fed member. Uh, these are companies that often make a lot of money and sometimes they lose a lot of money. So that alone is not enough. Usually what we mean by systemic risk is that there's some kind of interconnectedness such that if one institution goes down, it will drag other institutions down with it. I don't see how a crypto custodian or a crypto stablecoin provider or, or, or anything like that poses systemic risk. The fact that Bitcoin prices go up and down, I mean, look, maybe that means banks shouldn't be investing in crypto as a prop trading asset. That I could accept for the moment. But the idea that a custody bank, that a payments bank poses systemic risk because it's using a blockchain, Nick, that's just prejudice. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. So we are just about out of time. I really wanted to get your take on one last uh, question, though, very quickly. SEC Chair Gary Gensler has suggested to Congress at least twice now that a federally uh, a federal regulator for crypto exchanges, um, rather than you know the state by state exchange, might be the way to go. And he's asked Congress to take a look at that. Um, it, it, this it, obviously you, I think you might agree with that. You know, given your work at the OCC and your proposals last year, but I'm just curious, you know, what your take is on that idea. Yeah, I, I think we got to be careful about that um, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, I think it is important that the SEC identify, you know, token uh, 
you know, offerings that are basically unregistered securities offerings. That happens and that's a problem. You know, uh, they have authority to do that today. But there's a reason in this country why we made the affirmative decision not to regulate cash spot markets. And that's what the Bitcoin and ETH markets are and what a lot of these crypto markets are. They're just spot cash markets. The reason is, you know, you don't want to get to a place where a farmer can't sell a bushel of soybeans unless they register, you know, that, those soybeans on some sort of an exchange, right? The, the idea is we allow human beings in a free capitalist society to bring their goods to market and sell them. When I'm paying $50 for that much Bitcoin, there's no security issue going on. And the idea that it's any different from a cash spark market in any other commodity, that's going to put a friction on commerce that will impede the development of this asset class and wouldn't be a good thing. I mean, frankly, if I was a farmer, I'd be super scared of that proposal. So I'd focus more on the existing enforcement laws, Nick, and, uh, and make sure that people are not involved in fraud. But saying exchanges that aren't trading securities ought to be subject to securities regulation would, would go against about 50 years of, uh, of legal authority. Uh, the Federal Reserve has so far pretty much been silent on digital assets up until a few weeks ago when they released their payment system access principles. Uh, it was, they, they've been silent on, on digital assets. And so one of the, one of the interesting things that has happened in the last few days at the Federal Reserve is, um, Governor Brainerd's keynote here at Consensus on Monday. She started talking about stable coins and getting them into the banking system. She's been pretty, pretty clear about that for a while. Um, and then last week, um, uh, we saw Chairman Powell uh, release a video uh, where he also talked about the same thing. So uh, there's not having Federal Reserve approval for activities that may come under that, that touch U.S. dollars, um, I think, is is still a regulatory risk for the industry. And so to the extent that that a bank gets Federal Reserve approval, it takes that big regulatory risk off the table. Uh, one of the important things to add, though, is that even though the OCC Trust Bank Charter has been around for a long time, Brian Brooks made a major change to it that, as you know, Mark, the banking industry has, uh, has very loudly objected to, um, which is right before the inauguration in January, uh, the OCC changed its policy with regard to chartering trust banks so that non-fiduciaries could get a trust bank charter. It used to be under the under decades of practice that the OCC trust bank charter was only granted to fiduciary trust companies. And the OCC has in its policy handbook, a statement that custody is not a fiduciary activity. And so if, if the bank is only engaged in custody services, or primarily engaged in custody services, historically, it would not have been eligible for a trust charter. Uh, this is one of the things that the um, Biden administration has indicated that is re it is reviewing. And I think there's a decent chance that that does end up in litigation with the banking industry. You saw the big objections that were launched by the uh, banking industry against that very change, which was not subjected to the traditional public comment period. And it happened three days before uh, the first charter was granted under that, under those new rules. I was strolling on the moon one day. <laughs> We've all been watching this Bitcoin ETF you put out up in Canada. Not only were the volume numbers tremendous when it came out, but what's really important, and although what is not a surprise to me, because we saw it in Europe and we see it with ETFs in other categories, is that there really wasn't much of a premium or discount. Again, what people love about ETFs is that you get a price close to what it's worth. Uh, that's all they ask. They, uh, they get that it's a volatile asset class. They just want a good deal. 
So can you talk to me about your experience with the recent downturn and what it showed you and how the ET- how you think the ETF performed and anything in the sort of behind the scenes that would be interesting to us? Yeah, no, first off, um, look, we're really proud of the way uh, we've been able to prove this asset uh, fits within the elegance of the ETF structure over the last number of months. And, you know, frankly, you know, we had been um, working with the regulators to explain all this and and working, you know, to explain that the changes in infrastructure, the changes uh, in liquidity, changes in the ability for market makers to provide liquid markets uh, at that, that were right in line with net asset value, all these things. But ultimately, the real test is always when you go live and, and see it. And, you know, we've been amazed by it. And of course, in the most recent downturn, I mean, we've seen volatility for the most part, I mean, of course, a lot of good upward swing and momentum, but we saw some downtrends, uh, pretty significant downtrends over the last couple of months. And then of course, in the last two weeks to see the big uh, shift downwards. And I think, um, you know, Eric, you actually highlighted it over Twitter. You know, I, I think our spread um, on the downturn just on Friday was at like two basis points or three basis points from NAV to price. And that really does highlight, like even in a, in a stressful time, the market makers did their job of ensuring, you know, efficiency uh, and making sure that market, you know, investors were going to be able to, uh, you know, have this as an efficient way. And that's the most important thing an ETF brings is that it provides efficient, secure way to get access to this asset class, which was a very clunky asset class for the majority of investors prior to our ETF launch. I realize they just put four of us on this panel who are just very pro Bitcoin ETF. They really should have stacked us with an anti-person. But I guess let me play devil's advocate here a little bit. And Nate, you're actually investing like my mom's money. You're an advisor uh, or, you know, maybe she's not going to be in crypto. But let's say, you know, a millennial, a younger uh, client of yours. Do you feel comfortable putting them in crypto directly? Would you rather have the ETF? Then there's GBTC. How are you working that out with real money? Yeah, so I mean, it's a layered question because if I think about the questions that our advisors have received from their clients over the past year, by far and away, Bitcoin and crypto have led that. So think about all the things that have occurred in the markets, whether it be ARK ETFs and SPACs and you know marijuana. Bitcoin and crypto by far has blown away the inquiries we've had coming in. And you know, here's the thing. If you think about an investor who has an account, let's say at Charles Schwab or Fidelity, that investor may not want to go set up an account at Coinbase. They may not want to go to Cash App. They may not want to own Bitcoin Direct. And, and sure, they've made that onboarding process pretty easy at Coinbase. But the thing is, is that investor investor wants to log into their Schwab account. They want to see all their holdings in one place. They want to have consolidated performance reporting. They want to have a consolidated tax reporting. It's about convenience. First and foremost, it's convenience and exposure. And then I think I would say convenience with security. I mean, the fact is, it is possible for if somebody owns Bitcoin direct to lose their private key. We've heard countless stories about that. People losing a laptop, gold storage device. It's possible that an exchange gets hacked. Not saying that that would happen to Coinbase, but it is a potential risk. And so to me, it boils down to convenience and exposure and security. You know, in terms of your your question regarding whether or not somebody should have exposure to this, the way that we always describe Bitcoin is similar to a venture capital investment in that it could be a home run or it could go to zero. But the fact is, investors are hearing about this. They want to get exposure. They're going to do it with or without us. And so if we can help facilitate that through an ETF, 
have some guardrails in place. We can help them appropriately size that exposure, make sure it's being rebalanced in a disciplined manner. And are we going to advise a client to back up the truck and, and you know put 20% of their portfolio in Bitcoin? Of course not. But having a reasonable allocation, which I would suggest perhaps 1% to 5%, somewhere in that neighborhood, I think that can make a lot of sense for an aggressive investor or even a growth investor. And I'll just add, if you look at the historical data, and admittedly, the sample size overall is small, right? Bitcoin has only been with us since 2009. But if you look at the data we have since that period in time, owning a small allocation to Bitcoin would have improved a, a globally diversified portfolio's risk-adjusted returns. So will that happen going forward? We don't know. But uh, I, again, I think for the right type of investor, yes, it absolutely makes sense to have an allocation. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the market makers, which are crucial to for this to happen. Um, Dave, just when you think about this, we had um, Ophelia Snyder from 21 Shares, and she was talking about how a lot of uh, market makers in the U.S. are actually now trading crypto. And I, I think that's an underrated aspect here is the amount of intelligence and know-how that's already in crypto that would obviously help alleviate any of the surveillance and manipulation concerns as well. Yeah. I, I mean, again, just look at what happened this weekend, right? So yeah, we had a big move and we can, you know, lots of reasons why that might've happened. Chinese miners going offline, liquidations of asset pools from, from pooled miners, like all sorts of things may or may not have happened to cause that decline. But what really didn't happen was we didn't hear that JP Morgan's desk blew up. We didn't hear that some Fidelity customer blew up. We didn't hear about some, you know, US hedge fund that was way out over their skis that blew up. The price just went down and it was extraordinarily orderly. And now the price is coming back up and it's extraordinary, extraordinarily ordinary. So I, I dismiss most of those concerns at this point because the market has shown again and again that the core structures are working. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't some Wild West stuff still happening, right? I mean, the kinds of you know leverage stuff that you can get through exchanges like FTX, the kind of uh, derivatives that can be built off of the, the, the ecosystem, some of those may be problematic and some of those may not be appropriate for a retail U.S. investor, but that has nothing to do with just owning Bitcoin. I think the other interesting right. thing is whether investors you know, want to go after traditional ETF issuer brands or they want to go after crypto brands. I think that's something else to watch. That's a fascinating well. question as well, whether uh, a crypto brand versus an ETF brand. It's going to be interesting. I just want to get through two lightning rounds. We have a minute each for lightning rounds. We have two minutes left. I want to get your over under on when you think the SEC will approve and a sentence on why. Start with Sam, then Nate, then Dave. I think they'll they'll approve um, end of this year, early next year, uh, and I think it's because they have a very hard time creating a strong argument as to why this shouldn't be done. Uh, I do I do agree that you know they will you know have some more blockers, but I do think that they will approve it ultimately. I'm on record as saying 2021. If that doesn't happen, I have to eat a dollar bill on camera and stop tweeting about Bitcoin ETF. So, uh, in terms of over under, you know I've said late August, early September. After hearing Gensler's uh, comments over the past couple of weeks, I'm a little less optimistic. I'll still stick with 2021, but I'll push that time frame out to later, November, December. Yeah, my, my bar bet was August 18th, which is six months to the day from when SOM got approved. And that sort of, you know, is tongue in cheek, you know, we're, we're about six months behind Canada on most important things. So 
you know, that's I'm going to stick to that. I, I don't believe it as much. I'm sort of with Nate where it's like I kind of made that bet in public. So I got to stick to it. But having heard what I've heard, I think I'm a little bit more in Psalm's camp. I think this is probably going to dribble into next year. So this next panel slash segment is a short one. It's a very short one, but this one kind of surprised me. It, it was it was supposed to be a talk about Bitcoin SPACs and how, you know, the whole wealth is measured during this kind of, I don't know, I guess you could say hopium slash price signal slash breakdown, uh, I guess. They really didn't have a clear direction of where this panel was going, which is why it surprised the crap out of me when they started talking about the future of media. And Tyler Neville was on there. He's he's somebody from Blockworks, uh, and Blockworks is a new uh, crypto, uh, you know, um, I, guess, I guess you would call it a crypto magazine. Uh, they do things a little bit different than uh, some of these other publications. Like CoinDesk and CoinTelegraph and, and Decrypt and and um, they do things a little bit a little bit different, uh, which is which is great. It's it's it's, it's good to see. Uh, it's good to see variety, right? So it was interesting to see him talk about all this stuff because for a second there, I thought I was listening to myself. <laughs> I was like, wow, this guy is totally sounding like me. So, you know, there was there was something about the way he was talking about this stuff. Where I was like, you know what? This is good. This is good stuff. We got to put it in the show because Lynn Alden's also in it. She, she talks about, you know, her usual breakdown of the economy and M2 and all that stuff. So take a listen. It's good stuff.
And so in this type of environment, uh, you know, investors are, are unfortunately in some ways pushed out on the risk spectrum, but it's important to, you know, manage how much risk you're taking on. And so, you know, a lot of my emphasis has been on historically uh, cash flow producing companies, companies that are trading at reasonable valuations that, uh, you know, are able to adjust their prices as needed to kind of keep up with the changing amount of money in the system. But then in addition to that sort of hedge, uh, you can use things like gold or Bitcoin, where, you know, they those entities themselves might not be producing cash flows, but they represent, you know, different types of money or different types of scarce money like, you know, bear assets that basically can protect your your net worth over the long term. But basically what you're sacrificing is that your your uh you know cash is basically low volatile in the short term but almost guaranteed to lose value over the long term whereas gold and bitcoin have higher levels of volatility. Bitcoin especially in the other cryptocurrencies recently we've seen you know recently how volatile they can be. Uh, but basically they you know because they have the those more scarce uh you know kind of uh, firmer monetary policies. You know, gold can only only be mined at such a high rate, uh, generally under two percent a year on average. Uh, you know, Bitcoin has its own kind of fixed uh, distribution schedule that eventually caps out, and so you know, investors are finding ways to incorporate those in their portfolios, especially at a time when when rates are you know negative on a real basis. And if you look back over the past fifty years, for example, gold's strongest uh, inverse correlation is with uh, rates when they go you know negative and, and heading lower. Uh, and so basically, we're in an environment where the combination of of high quality businesses with you know separated about different types of jurisdictions, uh, combined with some of those scarce assets, commodity exposure, gold exposure, uh, and in my view, Bitcoin exposure, basically helps an investor round out their portfolio. And with something like Bitcoin, one of the advantages is that you can have a relatively small position and you can still have, for example, cash, and that that Bitcoin position can hedge some of your cash basis. So you're not basically you know, forced to ex- totally get out of cash uh, because you have some, some hedges there in case you were to have a more significant devaluation event. Yeah. So I take a super macro view on this stuff. Uh, my worldview is essentially there's too much leverage in the system for the capital class to take losses on their financial assets. And as a result, we are living in a post-truth society where we have permanently like negative real rates. And Lynn's been uh, the, the person to go to on, on this sort of like data-driven stuff. But my main thesis is that boomers that are in charge are basically trading a free market for like a healthy retirement. We have U.S. public pensions that are 120% of GDP, and we have debt to GDP at 130%. So the government obligations are just kind of outrageous, and we need higher nominal growth rates and a lower currency to actually like juice the system to get this uh, post-truth, uh, these post-truth numbers. So at the end of the day, it's just a political battle between capital and labor. And so we're moving from a cycle of wealth accumulation for the past like 30, 40 years, which was very laissez-faire capitalism to a more like socialist wealth distribution type environment. And that's a political thing where like the data is not going to tell you that's where we're living. Um, if, you know, just this morning, Raphael Bostic was in uh, an Axios interview and basically said he's going to talk about lump sum reparations countering discrimination in the black communities, low-income communities, and rural America. Like these are unprecedented unprecedented things for the Fed to like go after. And that's just a cycle from capital to labor, you know, turning. And uh, with that backdrop, I just wanted to take a quick look at the past year and like what assets have done in that light. So if you look 
you know, the past three months, Bitcoin's been horrible. But over a year, Bitcoin's up 300%, lumber's up 287%, oil's up 106% or 76%, uh, the Qs, NASDAQ's up 45%. Meanwhile, you have TLT, the long duration treasury, down 15%, and the dollar down 10%. So Bitcoin has absolutely crushed performance of the dollar and treasuries. And along with that, you know, you have gold, which is up 8% over the past year, which gold is like the boomer low vol way to play this like fake world we're living in with negative real rates. So I think if you're a millennial or a Gen Xer or a Zoomer, you're going to want to have to own Bitcoin or any digital asset that has a fixed supply. Um, if you're an older boomer that wants to kind of you know, keep up with the inflation that's coming. I think you you play gold because it's less volatile. Look, right now, um, it's smoke and mirrors. The Fed is trying to pull the wool over pretty much everyone's eyes. But when you actually look at what's going on in the market, you look at at, at pricing, whether it's lumber, whether it's copper, gold, silver, uh, whether it's Bitcoin, everything is pointing towards a much higher inflation rate. And I don't understand how people aren't getting their heads around that. Um, there's a really famous economist, uh, Canadian guy, David Rosenberg, who I think a year or two, two years ago said, you know, the single biggest issue that the market's facing is 13 million. And then, of course, your, your next question is 13 million what? And he would say 13 million millennial investment advisors, millennial uh, PMs uh, who have never seen a market crash. And we're really uh, sitting, in my opinion, on the precipice of, of a, of a re-emphasis uh, or a re-weighting of what's going on in the markets. And, and to Tyler's point, you, know, you, you, you need to be long copper, you need to be long gold, you need to be long silver, you need to be long things because inflation uh, it, it, it is skyrocketing. There's a very cool website called Shadow Stats um, that measures inflation in 1980 terms before the Fed brought in what's called hedonic pricing. And if you actually look at the way they used to measure inflation in 1980 or pre-1980, we're sitting at a lot, around 11%, uh, or at least the U.S. is sitting around 11%. So in any way, shape, or form, when you measure your performance, you've got to be subtracting that 11% unless you're actually long some of these, these commodities that, that actually give you a hedge against them. Um, my view is that Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, uh, decentralized finance are going to turn the world uh, upside down in terms of how we view investments, in terms of how we view performance. Um, and quite frankly, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I own a, a boatload of the company DeFi that I'm uh, at a capital market for. And similarly, um, the exploration company, which which is looking for gold. Uh, but in your question, you know, you, you, you had a, it, it's been harder to find real value. Well, the real value, if you go look at the performance of the Canadian uh, commodities market, um, that being uh, producers down to explorers, it's literally the cheapest it's ever been in history. So there, there is value. It's just a matter of people understanding where you have to go. And I think people have maybe lost track of, of uh, the narrative. And, and this goes towards the, the second question you, you're going to be posing. But it's not Bitcoin or gold. It's not lumber or gold. It's not copper or Bitcoin. If you really want to be protecting yourself uh, from what's coming down in the future, I think you want to own a bit of all of it. And instead of it becoming a sort of a binary outcome, people should be looking at um, owning some Bitcoin. And now's, now, in my opinion, is a great time to get into it after this sell-off because it's only a matter of time before you start seeing more institutional investments emerging in that space. 
So I, I actually am going to hit you with a Winston Churchill quote. So I apologize. So he said, statistics are like a drunk with a lamppost used more for support than illumination. I only believe in statistics that I doctored myself. And I think that's exactly <laughs> the truth we're living in right now is like, any giant institution has their narrative and their narrative spinners that come come to market and essentially like tell you what to believe. You know, as I see the media grow, you kind of see how the sausage is made, and it's kind of disgusting because you're you're seeing just like straight up money and PR and all this stuff. And and this is my thesis wrapped up in a nutshell, which is you want to be long, you know companies that are doing um, long volatility things. So like if you look at, you know, the mainstream news networks like CNN or Fox, you know, they're shorting vol, they're trying to control the narratives. You want to be long all the other companies that are in in kind of like nascent industries and growing industries that are kind of long vol proxies. Kind of similar to what Russell said about like nickel, you know, in my mind I think that's like a long vol because everything else the juice has been squeezed out of everything else. Um, and, and to take this one step further, I listened to a really fascinating interview from Divya Narendra and the Winklevoss twins uh, last week on Some Zero. And they were the three people that came up with the original idea of Facebook. And they basically came out and said, like, you can't scale these platforms ad infinitum. You end up creating a 50-50 thing where half the people have one position, half the people have the other position, and you can't, you you inevitably, they, they cannibalize themselves at some point. And that's the same thing if you look at any industry, whether it's, you know, um, ETFs, like passive management and public equities is eating itself. You can't do the due diligence on stocks at scale as you need to. So my, my, my suggestion of what you should do as an employment or or you know if you want real growth you have to go to smaller companies that haven't squeezed the juice out of everything um and and one specific instance of why we're living in a post truth world and like someone i've worked with very closely is carson block he's like the best short seller on the planet and what this environment has basically created is people who do real good work and can actually like find companies that, you know, the narrative doesn't match with reality. You have all the alpha in the world. The SPAC boom created like all these fake companies that just say, oh, my my revenue in a you know five years is going to be a billion dollars. And and that's who you need to bet on people that are going against the grain of all those giant institutions and that are manufacturing the sausage. So I think the truth is there. It's just depending on where you look.
the last panel is probably my favorite panel of the past two days. Seriously. It's uh, with Jack Mahler and a couple of DeFi bros. And quite frankly, this space is getting crazy right now. Um, you have Ethereum maximalism because <laughs> that's what it is at an all-time high. Uh, I have never seen so much Ethereum like shilling and Ethereum bravado and just straight lying about Bitcoin coming from Ethereum uh, ever before. And it's totally, it's totally different than the Ethereum I remember of a couple years ago, right? I mean, we used to go to these conferences. These were the same people I used to talk to, <laughs> right? Like, these are the same people I used to cover. Um, they were friendly people. I don't know what happened. I don't know if money changed them. I, I mean, I don't know what's going on here, but... This the the way they're acting now is just completely different, and it's 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 sad to see. Quite frankly, um, money changes people; it really does, and uh, you're seeing it in Ethereum right now. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get into the whole you know uh, Ethereum thing because that would be a whole episode on itself. But but I will say though, you're seeing a lot of Ethereum people just come out and just bash Bitcoin for no reason. And uh, I'm not saying Bitcoiners don't bash Ethereum because that happens, but you're seeing you're seeing them taunt Bitcoin Bitcoiners a lot a lot more these days, and um, just lying about the history of Ethereum, um, you know. And you kind of have to own your history, right? Just like we own the Bitcoin history, kind of just have to own it, you know. We don't we don't hide about Mount Gox. We don't hide about Silk Road. These are things that happened, right? Like these are things that happened. You shouldn't lie about the fork that took place that created Ethereum Classic, right? The DAO hack. You shouldn't lie about that. That's what happened. It is what it is. You shouldn't lie about the pre-mine. That's what happened. It, it, you use the money to build Ethereum. It ended up working out. I mean, it is what it is. So these are things they're trying to cover up now and say like they never happened. So, you know, a lot of new people are coming to the space and they're like, yeah, it's decentralized. It's like, no, it's not, <laughs> you know? So I will say though, that you're seeing a lot of that happening right now. And quite frankly, it's, it's, it's disgusting. And it's, it's just quite the opposite of, of what I saw a couple of years ago, you know, when we were all hanging out and, and talking, these, these are the same people. And they're acting completely different. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because DeFi is, is so big now that um, a lot of people are able to create their own coin very easy and then profit off of it. Uh, you're seeing a lot of that happen very, very fast, you know. And I think that's probably what it is. It reminds me of the ICO back in the day where you could create an ICO, but it's even easier now because you can just create your own currency. It's definitely a problem. And now what we're seeing is they're taunting regulators. <laughs> they're taunting banks. And that's that's just dumb. <laughs> like, why would you taunt banks? Like, they're trying to work with you. <laughs> why would you taunt them? 
it's like they don't even know what's going on. It's like they don't even know that they're working with you. Oh, man. So I, I really think what's going to happen, I, I, this is just mean just knowing the space inside and out. I really think they're going to make an example of somebody. I don't know who it's going to be. I, I don't know what that person is, is doing right now. I don't know who it's going to be, but it's going to happen. Just like it happened three years ago with Ether Delta, right? They came after the developer of Ether Delta. You know, they find the shit out of them. It was big news. Ether Delta was a decentralized exchange. They were SEC was able to prove that it wasn't as decentralized as they, as they made it seem. They went after the kid. They're going to do that here in DeFi just to prove a point. Because if you start taunting regulators on Twitter and you start taunting banks on Twitter and you have a mass following and you're doing it and you're getting retweeted and you're getting hearted on, on that platform, you're just asking for it, quite frankly. You're just asking for it. So it's one thing for us Bitcoiners to do it because there's nobody you can take down. <laughs> right. Satoshi was smart in that way. Like there's nothing you can take down. The only thing you can take down is the price. And, and Elon Musk already has done that. But quite frankly, thanks, Elon. Now we can buy cheaper Bitcoin. So it doesn't really even fucking matter. <laughs> yeah. Ethereum is in for a world of hurt. And that's why it's not decentralized, because you can go after individuals. It's that simple. Uh, my name is Jack. 
I'm probably most well known for being the founder and CEO of Strike. Uh, and we're a, we describe ourselves as a Bitcoin native neobank, which I think is why I'm on this panel. Uh, and as of recent, uh, solved the remittance issue to and from El Salvador um, and uh, making uh, global payments free and instant. So I'm happy to be here and uh, excited for the conversation. Great. Thanks. Uh, David, why don't you go next? Yeah, I'm David Hoffman, uh, co-founder of, of Bankless, which is a newsletter and podcast focused on democratizing information for how to use decentralized financial services for the empowerment of the individual, how to break free from your bank and go bankless. Uh, and and that's been an, an absolute blast. And uh, really what I've been particularly interested in and really the through line for what I think crypto is at large is if you really decentralize our technology and, and generate peer-to-peer technologies, and we also generate peer-to-peer money, if you decentralize and disintermediate those two things, you kind of really change everything there is about the world. And so uh, really what fascinates me the most about you know DeFi is that there's actually at the end of the road, there's completely different culture as a result of uh, the, the disintermediation of our relationships, both from a technological and a monetary standpoint. Maybe the question is kind of a general question, Jack, maybe if you can start is, is where is DeFi? Like where in the world is it? Um, so this may be awkward to be clear. I'm actually not a proponent of Ethereum and uh, we, our company is built on the Bitcoin uh, protocol and the Lightning Network protocol. Um, DeFi to me probably carries many definitions. I'm not sure which one this panel panel is solely focused on. My interest in as far as banking goes is I just think that the general financial experience that a consumer has today is long outdated. Um, I don't think my kid will ever walk into a localized regional bank, um, nor should he or she. And uh, I think whether it's with or without crypto, you're seeing a massive movement into what we're describing neobanks, whether that's Cash App, Revolut, Chime, and 26. um, And and convenience to the consumer financially is evolving very quickly. Uh, And so we at Strike are really rethinking that experience. Um, And in particular to El Salvador, one of the very interesting things about these protocols is they're open. And that these protocols work in El Salvador, which is a third world developing country, the same they work in London and Chicago. And that's a very powerful concept. So they're cheaper, they're faster, um, but they're also global and they're also open. And so we, within three weeks, we're the number one app in El Salvador. We're onboarding over 20,000 users a day there um, and solved a lot of their financial issues that you know their financial experience is 250 years old. Uh, they didn't have P2P. They didn't have access to instant remittance. They didn't have anything. And so uh, we think, yeah, with, with an open protocol um, that allows for near instant cash finality and, and final clearance of money globally, uh, the world's first native, natively digital commodity, which is Bitcoin, um, it's time to rethink the experience that a consumer has when interacting uh, with finance. And that walking into the Chase banking branch a block away from me um, doesn't make any sense at all. I should get issued an account and routing number with the app I download and be able to make free instant payments anywhere in the world if we ha- now have a digital commodity that can achieve cash finality anywhere in the world 24-7, 365. So um, it's my high-level thoughts. And uh, yeah, but <laughs> David, I, but what about I, you? I what, do you about what do you think, David? 
Yeah, yeah. The the what I'm particularly concerned about with a, a lot of what I'm seeing in the world of crypto is that we are seeing this very strong emergence of crypto banks, right? Like Coinbase is this new crypto bank. Binance US has that this new debit card. We got Gemini issuing a, a credit card, and I really just think that's kind of the the sa- the the old boss, same as the new boss, right? Like uh, there was a, a headline out of the block today that says Coinbase hires former former Goldman Sachs executive as chief policy officer, and we saw also Brian Brooks get hired by Binance US. And what I'm particularly concerned about is really these new crypto exchanges turning into crypto banks and basically recreating the old financial system just in a new on a, on a new substrate, right? Just using these new crypto monies, but really having this intermediated relationship with their customers. And so that's why I'm particularly interested about you know the the Ethereum app layer and DeFi native financial activities because really what the new paradigm is is not new banks using new monies but new protocols using new monies, right? Like full disintermediation. And that's really one of the the reasons why DeFi on Ethereum has just absolutely exploded uh, uh, lately is because, you know, Scoopy Truples, his his application, it plugs right into into Yearn as another application. Uh, And and Yearn plugs into Compound and to other applications. And really, really the through line is composability uh, and allowing protocols which are, inherently opt-in systems rather than top-down coercive systems of which I, I see banks really uh, being the thing that empowers the individual to choose what's best for them uh, rather than just recreating a, a, the old banking system of, uh, on top of new uh, new digital monies, right? Like instead of having a fiat currency, one fiat currency per country, instead we can have internet money. We have Bitcoin and Ether as the one money, as the, the, the global monies for the whole entire internet, right? Instead of having crypto banks domiciled in inside of borders, we have DeFi protocols as uh, the actual true revolution of what it means to have financial services. Because Uniswap is the same application, whether you're in the United States, you're in Venezuela, you're in Europe, it's the same Uniswap left and right, because it's built over the internet, it's a protocol baked into the internet. Uh, and so the, the, we all know that you know, money is more efficient when more people use the same monies. And the same thing is going to be true for DeFi apps. Like DeFi apps can simply just reach larger people by being a protocol rather than you know, a centralized uh, uh, you know, crypto bank. Uh, and so th- th- uh, th- it's just more uh, scalable. Like this is the same thing as Nick Zabo's social scalability. Things just work better when more people are using the same uh, uh, systems. And when these systems are protocols on the internet, they are simply more scalable to more people. Let's let's uh, turn tr- to another. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, let's hear it, Jack. Why is that true? I, I don't. I'm not totally understanding. The, the the PayPal monetary network was built on the internet. Why is mm-hmm. I don't understand like why these protocols actually are the opposite of scalable. They're tremendously inefficient to persist all transaction history forever. And uh, running a full Ethereum node is tremendously difficult, uh, and none of the exchanges actually do so. So I don't I, I actually don't understand. What do you mean? You don't like, think why? the exchanges actually run their own nodes? The, the whole Ethereum running a node is difficult thing is just uh, is, is Bitcoin or FUD from 2016 and 2017 that has no basis in reality these days. You can run a, an, an Ethereum node on a Raspberry Pi. I don't know if that's true. A fully validating one? Yes. An Ethereum 2 node, yeah, can run on a Raspberry Pi. Um, I'm not sure about a Geth node. Uh, I think you need a little bit beefier specs for a Geth node. But uh, despite that still, we you know Ethereum network has... 
you know, like a massive amount of nodes that are securing the network in addition to the miners. Um, so, I mean, like we're, you know, the two top two decentralized protocols are Bitcoin and Ethereum and the top two pristine collaterals in the space are. And, you know, I think we see that with uh, Bitcoin, you know, you know, they realize that, uh, you know, they want to ossify the protocol to, uh, you know, focus on the monetary value of Bitcoin and the hardness of it. Um, instead of being big blocking and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, restricting access to running a node, they decided to go small blocking. And, you know, as a result, uh, you know, there's a scalability bottleneck with that. So Bitcoiners have kind of like traded that off for, you know, tackling scalability on Lightning Network and also like through crypto banks, like, you know, uh, and stuff like that. And I think that's an acceptable trade off. But at the same time, I'm more of like a DeFi purist. And even then, like if a lot of things do move to uh, DeFi native, and a lot of people get on DeFi and it hits critical mass. I don't think it's going to hit everybody. I think DeFi penetration might be 30, 40, 50% max. And then the rest are going to need like some middleman service or some service aggregator that's really easy and really friendly where they don't have to manage private keys or anything like that. So I think there's a place for both of them in the world of the future. Scoopy. So that's interesting. Well, just if I, sorry, Jack, let me just, I want to, I want to ask Scoopy a follow up question here. 40%. I mean, you think that's, I mean, is that realistic? I'm just like thinking about in my personal life, like how many people, you know, spend a lot of time doing, you know, various financial things versus, you know, other things they do in their lives. I mean, I was, I was, I was watching some of the videos on your website today. Um, and it's all so cool, but it's all, you know, it, 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 it's like pretty involved, right? Like how, do, how much, how much, pen, like, is that realistic? The penetration levels that you're, you're talking about? I mean, I think in a long-term timeframe, uh, yes, because I mean, if you think about who's going to be using these things, it's, it's young people, it's millennials, it's, uh, you know, it's the Zoomers and, and, you know, the generation after them, and they're going to be digital native and, and, inter, you know, interfacing with the DAP on their website is going to be like no big deal to them at all. Um, but I definitely think that that's not going to be for everybody. Um, I, I'm not sure about these penetration numbers, but um, if if crypto does hit mass adoption, then those probably aren't like you know unrealistic. Um, and and to go to the fact about like people interacting with finance, like before I got into DeFi, I mean I maybe went to my my online bank like once a month just to check my balances and make sure everything was good. But now I'm on DeFi. I'm on DeFi for hours every single day, you know, trying to get opportunities, whether it's arbitrages or yield farming, you know, and different things like that. And like I've noticed that since I've gotten into it, like my behaviors financially and savings wise have like really changed uh, drastically. I mean, yeah, just, I'd like to, to add on to know, that as I, well because yeah, go ahead, David. Um, the, the more and more you talk to people who are using DeFi apps on on a daily or weekly basis, uh, a, a just simply the more you get used to it, and the, and it's it's truly a skill. And perhaps the reason why people get so turned off about like the UX and and just experience about using DeFi is because traditionally the banks will do all this stuff for them, but they'll pass on the crumbs of what the yield that these banks are are doing in their financial activities. They'll just pass the crumbs on to the depositors. And so really, this is a, a conversation about 
personal self-sovereignty and control over your own money. And so people aren't used to having a high touch environment with the investments that they make in, in whatever sort of yield mechanism that, that they're trying to, trying to utilize. But what I can tell you is an absolutely terrible user experience is what the banking system gives you. Uh, you know, you're, you're capped at, you know, 5000 or $15,000 $15, wire transfers, and you have to go in to actually talk to a banker to go do stuff. Whereas, you know, using a DeFi app on Ethereum, all you have to do is sign a transaction on your ledger, and you can do it from the comfort of your own home. And there's no permissions or no gating about, uh, you know, can you use your own money? Uh, and, and so this is really, this is a conversation of um, user empowerment. And maybe people aren't used to having such strong control and options about how they use their money, but that's what DeFi does for you. And, you know, talk to anyone who's been using DeFi consistently for like, you know, even just two or three months. Once you get over the learning curve of what it's like to have the power of DeFi at, at your fingertips, you don't go back. The traditional financial ecosystem is actually a terrible user experience. We just have Stockholm syndrome as to to, to what that is, and and because we don't have access to our to our own money in the traditional financial system. When you send a transaction on a blockchain, as you know, it's it's final. So if your kid gets a hold of your private keys or knows the password to your ledger, and then you know buys it on some you know stupid <laughs> NFT that you don't want. Then that's that. That's final. I mean, I guess at that point, then you have to hope that you can sell that NFT for more than he bought it for. But, you know, I think <laughs> with, with, you know, response, like with great freedom comes a lot of responsibility too. And I think that like people being responsible for their money is a, is a really good thing. And, you know, and not having it be in the hands of another institution, you know, who, who takes, you know, unnecessary gambles with your own money, you know, because they know they have insurance of the federal government backing, you know, the deposits and stuff like that. And then well, they that's, have all to then, you know, only give you 0.5% interest when they're making billions of dollars of profit every single year. I mean, it, it's a joke. Like, why would somebody use those services when they're not prosumer at all? It's it's like, you know, it's who wants to be in a bank now? I, I look at I get flyers from my bank in the mail and they're advertising 0.01% interest for a, a high you know savings account. And I just laugh at that. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, the worst, pool on, you know, on Ethereum gives me like 4%. Like, come on. Um, no, I, I agree with the panelists. I think it's a, it's a tremendous luxury to have a choice. Um, if you do want to opt and have a. Uh, self-sovereign ownership of your finances, then it does carry a responsibility that you used to outsource to a bank. And if you don't want that, then you shouldn't use it. But the choice is what's new. And that's one of the greater innovations that Bitcoin brought to humanity is the choice to act self-sovereignly in a financial manner. Um, and it comes with trade-offs just like everything else in life. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to have the ability to verify, not trust anyone, make censorship resistant payments uh, and store your wealth without the risk of any counterparty getting in the way of your ability to custody it, then that takes on a set of responsibilities that you need to be prepared for. Um, and for some people, uh, that's okay. You know, I think a, a Bitcoin user is someone who owns Bitcoin. Um, it could be a futures contract at the CME, but they're buying into the fact that it's the very first truly scarce asset in human history. And then you have users that are running full nodes and acting entirely self-sovereignly in, in, in a vertical sense. Um, and they take on just a different set of responsibilities that has nothing to do with the CME. Um, and there's everyone else in between. Um, but it's the fact that we now have a choice, uh, which is really, really important. Uh, and it's defensible uh, for the properties that make Bitcoin valuable in the first place. Without it, um, we wouldn't have anything. 
Well, Plus, David, Bradley, I want to go back to you. Re roll a transaction. Just give your kid a credit card, right? Like, don't get, get don't give your kid your private keys. Just give them a credit card and let them use the fiat system if you're worried about rollbacks. But if you really want to get into the cutting edge, like that's where you need private keys. But so, so is that are is that what you're saying? Is that this is there's going to be parallel systems? Oh yeah, totally. The the fiat system isn't going anywhere. It's just going to be deprioritized. And uh, like Jack and, and Scoopy said, like you, we now have the option to exit. And you know, there's a there's Gresham's law where people will spend bad money and, and hoard their good money, right? And so if we want, you know, the the traditional ecosystem that we are all used to, where you know transactions aren't final, like we're gonna have that. Um, but if, but at the same time, we also have this more powerful ecosystem, which is the ecosystem of wealth generation and wealth preservation. And that inherently comes with self-sovereign private key management. I mean, I think it's all about the optionality. Like if you want to live on the wild, wild west, and, you know, and, and be in Bitcoin and be in DeFi, you know, Ethereum, you know, that, that option is there and, you know, people can exit from the system as they want to, but then like, definitely there's going to be parallels. And I think there's even going to be mergers where like, you know, banks, like, you know, JP Morgan's, the chases, they're actually going to hook in their backend to DeFi and start trying to extract yields from that for their customers because they can't compete with DeFi yields. And so I think that you're going to see, you know, all sorts of fusions going on with, with, you know, both the TradFi and the DeFi worlds you know, that were, you know, a liberal democracy, then the government would be way stepping over their bounds if they're trying to regulate uh, what we choose to value as individuals. Uh, and it would be very anti-free market, which is something that America, you know, we, we're decidedly a very pro-free market country. So I don't think that would make a lot of sense, um, even if they're trying to defend the currency. Like, I think, you know, the, the, the fiat system isn't going to go away. Uh, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. And I think if the Fed tried to, you know, turn off the spigots, then it just wouldn't work. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to stand in front of a river, you know, and trying to block the flow and, you know, nothing's going to stop it. In my opinion. David, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I'm reminded of a uh, Twitter thread from Raul Paul that came out yesterday where he goes um, in the headline, a major asset uh, class crashes 42% in 14 days, wiping out a trillion dollars in value in an orgy of liquidations of people uh, who are too levered with very low regulations. Many tokens fell 70%. Beneath the headline, crypto had a major, major volatility shock test and nothing happened. Leverage liquidations was offset by over collateralization. No one was left holding the baby. No firm Went, went under. The Fed didn't need to step in. DeFi didn't break and carry on near normal. And meanwhile, you know, Uniswap DEXs uh, had their all-time high in volume. Uh, Aave liquidations had their all-time high and didn't break at all. And everything just rebounded and carried on as normal. And so, Bradley, you earlier talked about, you know, do we really? How can we really have a financial system without, you know, central bank providing stability? Well, you know, stability in prices is one thing, but stability in a financial ecosystem is completely different. And on a day where, you know, Ether, the main asset under in DeFi had a 60% drawdown, the DeFi ecosystem, which is the ecosystem, the financial ecosystem of Ethereum, it continues to chug along as normal. Uh, and, you know, in stark contrast that, to isn't the- that also, isn't that also, I mean, because our society is not currently built on crypto, right? Our pension funds sure. are not too big, right? 
Right. And, and this is not to compare, like, th- this is in one way to compare, you know, 2008 drawdowns in prices and this absolute systemic collapse that that cro- uh, uh, crossed to DeFi and, and the, the way that it's structured. While these are not equivalent in size, they are very uh, different in the way that they are constructed. And having a financial system underpinned by over collateralization and smart contracts is a way better foundation to build a financial system over whatever credit fiat based system that the Federal Reserve is built on. And really, the discrepancy between the size of the legacy financial system and the current nascency in DeFi is the alpha that you can uh, cash in on, right? That is the discrepancy of size. If you believe that this is a a better financial system fundamental with its fundamental architecture, that's bullish. That, That makes me optimistic about the future. Jack, you know, let's go back to you. You know, we've, we're talking <laughs> DeFi here, but, you know, what, what is the, the sort of Bitcoin centric view of the future of banks? Well, I think the conversation about Wall Street is tremendously important. I don't think uh, the expectation that the Fed's monetary, new monetary policy can impose any form of stability in pricing anything um, is extraordinarily inaccurate. Uh, we now live in a world where we're experiencing 15 to 20% asset inflation. And so the CPI, which measures Caesar salad and Netflix subscriptions, um, is very biased. Uh, the house that you've always dreamed of, Bradley, the education that your kid wants, uh, the vacation you want, your dream car, that's getting drastically more expensive. Um, and the Fed's monetary policy has perverted risk tolerance across all assets. And society is scrambling to find a way to protect and preserve wealth and outcomes, a digital commodity um, that has no central authority. It's not backed by human emotion. And it's an asset and supply that you can rely on. And you're seeing a growing amount of people that are deciding to store their wealth in Bitcoin because they more or less have to. If you want to choose real estate, if you want to choose precious metals, that's fine. But if you look at the performance of Bitcoin, the reliability, and then the brand association that it's building, it's very clearly the best way to protect and preserve wealth. And so I would I would blame the volatility around Bitcoin lesser on the asset that is Bitcoin and more on the Federal Reserve's monetary policy and the mess that they've created. The day that they're gonna throw it back to you By now you should have somehow realized what you gotta do I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now Backbeat, the word is on the street that the fire in your heart is out You've heard it all before, but you never really had a doubt I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you now And all the roads we have to walk are winding And all the lights that lead us there are blinding Maybe you got 
y'all enjoyed the coverage this week it was a lot we laughed we cried we laughed some more we criticized <laughs> we criticized some more nah just kidding it was it was actually one of the better consensus than years past quite frankly um i think day three was probably the worst day um i think day four was probably the second worst day uh Day two and day one were were just the best. Um, I don't know. You guys tell me. You tell me which one was the best day. But um, I think day one, day two were the best day. I think leading off with the uh, Federal Reserve Chairman was probably the worst keynote speaker in the history of keynote speakers. <laughs> I have never seen somebody come so unprepared to a uh, to a an event much less be the main keynote speaker and be that unprepared and that unprofessional in my entire life. And then to top it off, they're the Federal Reserve, uh, they're a chairman, you know, not chairman, but a, you know, a, a sitting board member. Um, yeah, that was, that just tells you what they think about the industry, quite frankly. Um, yeah, it's just, it was, it was that, that was, um, that's something that's gonna be unforgettable. And it's funny too, because no one, no one reported that. Not CoinDesk, not Cointelegraph, not The Block, not Decrypt, not Blockworks. No one, no one said anything about that. Just Car, <laughs> just Car. But that's why y'all listen to me because I tell it like it is. I tell it like it is. Um, I hope y'all enjoyed it, and uh, we're gonna do it again next year. This. Next week we have coming up is our Bitcoin conference coverage. We finally, surprisingly, thanks to thanks to Will at uh, Bitcoin Media over there. Thank you, Will. We got a press pass. Um, so that was cool. Came just in time. Uh, we were already going. <laughs> so, but thanks, Will, because now we'll be able to really uh, get the uh, get the coverage that we need. That was my biggest worry. Um, so we'll be able to get the coverage that we need to, uh, document everything and to get you guys the, the latest episodes. I'm going to try to, you know, to head home every evening after the conference and get that published for y'all and then, uh, try to get it edited. Um, at least try to get one out that weekend and try to get both out before, before Monday. So look for that to drop next week. Uh, this week, uh, or Leading up to this week, we're going to try to release a couple episodes. We're going to try to release the last episode of Thriller Crypto. That's right. 
that one we're sunsetting. If you don't know why that is, go and listen to Birth Crypto Death. And then we're also going to be, uh, you know, releasing our ESG episode here. And then we also probably going to have a thriller rundown somewhere in between there. And I think, I think that's pretty much it. I think that's pretty much it. So yeah, get ready for a very fast week and a fast turnaround. Okay. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Miami. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of people that I haven't seen in a really long time um, since since all of since COVID started pretty much. Right. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. And uh, I can't wait to to dive in there and, and, and get all that coverage for y'all. Um, it's going to be it's going to be a blast, quite frankly. But I will say this Bitcoin right now. Yeah, it's a little down, right? But you can't kill an idea. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's an idea that's worth fighting for. It's an idea that's worth striving for. People may say that, you know, Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme or the people that are behind Bitcoin are crazy. I think you have to be a little crazy to change the world. And I think the way our world is right now, we need to change it. And we need to change it and level the playing field for everybody and give everybody an opportunity. And the only thing that can do that is Bitcoin. See y'all next time.